Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. On this podcast, I invite people from a whole variety of backgrounds to this virtual table to engage in conversations about their perspectives on God, the Bible, theology, and some other tangentially related subjects. Pour yourself a drink, grab some food, and join me at the table where Father Andrew Stephen Damick has already taken a seat, amused me with his humor, and is ready to engage people like you. Father Andrew is an ordained Orthodox priest who was serving at St. Paul's Church in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, but who is now the Chief Content Officer of Ancient Faith Ministries. He is the author of many books, the host of several podcasts, and a fan of Middle Earth, and a complete joy to geek out with about theological issues. So how on earth did he get to be where he is today, you ask? Well, I will let him tell you. For the first few years of my life, my dad was in the Navy, but then when I was seven, my parents became missionaries. And when I was 10, we moved to the island of Guam, oh. where I lived for five years. And uh, my parents were radio missionaries, and my father is still still with the mission, although he's pretty close to retirement now. My mother passed away a few years ago. So that was our family identity when I was in college, I learned about the Orthodox Church. And mm. as I was kind of a process of beginning to become intellectually aware of what it means to be Christian. Did you go to a Christian university or you just happened to meet someone who is Orthodox? How did that introduction actually happen? N- neither. <laughs> uh, oh, great. Yeah, right. I love unusual stories. They're my favorite. No, I went to North Carolina State University, which is decidedly not a Christian school. Right. I mean, it's a big state university. But when I was there, I initially majored in, in communication and then tacked on an, uh, a degree in English literature, which is the one I ended up completing along with assorted other stuff. And one of my old friends from the time that I had lived on Guam was doing graduate work there at North Carolina State while I was an undergrad. And he, at the time, decided to become a Roman Catholic. And uh, mm. the missionary group that my family was with, as I said, were evangelical, so we were all Protestants. And, and I was really curious as to why he would become Roman Catholic. And so we had a conversation about that one time over lunch. And in the course of that conversation, the Orthodox Church was actually mentioned. And to this day, I still don't remember if it was him or me. It was just some kind of offhand remark. And neither one of us knew anything about it, really. But it stuck in my head. And so this was the, the, the middle, late 90s. So it was like 1997, I think. So I went to the computer lab at the university and I pulled up Alta Vista because there was no Google in 1997. <laughs> it's hard to believe, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> right, right. I just fed in Orthodox Church into the search bar and started reading everything on the internet that I could discover about the Orthodox Church. And in 1997, you could read almost everything there was about Orthodox Christianity that was on the internet in the space of about three weeks. Uh, So I I read what I could find and uh, eventually got into some email discussion groups that were geared towards Orthodox Christians and evangelicals having conversations with each other. And so I started asking lots of questions because I became very intrigued. I was in my early 20s at the time. And eventually there was a guy who said, hey, I can see from your email address that you live in my city. 
which again, that also dates it, right? Uh, you know, back in the, back in the nineties, when your email address was either where you worked or you went to, where you went to school, and uh, he invited me to church, even though I didn't know him, he didn't know me, and I went, and I was just utterly astonished by what I saw in Orthodox worship from and the very beginning. Yes, from the very moment that I saw it. Huh. I, I know a lot of people, a lot of a lot of you know, Protestants, when they first encounter Orthodox worship, are actually very off-put by it. But I was not. I was not. I mean, it was totally different from anything that I'd ever seen before. I mean, I grew up in the three hymns and a sermon and an altar call Baptist world. <laughs> and, you know, that's the Baptist liturgy, right? And then eventually my family sort of transitioned into the beginnings of a mega church in the 90s. I mean, in those days, there weren't fog machines and moving lights and stuff, but they did have the rock bands. Okay, I am interrupting just to flag this part in this episode for later. You need to remember this contrast for the end of the episode, where we end up in a very different place with very different ideas of sacred than fog machines and moving lights. And, and that was my last stop in the Protestant world was, was that. So Orthodox worship was like nothing I'd ever seen. And I remember when I walked in the front door, the first thing that I saw was this guy with a scraggly black beard coming at me, uh, wearing vestments, and he was swinging a sensor around, you know, jingle jangle and lots of smoke. <laughs> right. And I had never seen that before in my life. As a side note, I've always wondered about the long, scraggly black beard thing. And for some reason, I forgot to ask Father Andrew about that because he also has one. So I'll have to circle back to that and ask him later. Anyway, I digress. I had some idea about incense because I had seen Catholics in movies and stuff. But that was my very first encounter was this sort of literal encounter and I had to kind of move out of the way because it was very clear that he was not going to go around me. I attended the whole Divine Liturgy that Sunday morning and actually weirdly ended up singing along with the choir who were identical with the parishioners because it had there were 10 people that belonged to the church and so they were the <laughs> choir. Um, and I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have time to sort of theologically analyze what I was singing, but they just put this sheet music in front of me and I just sort of stumbled along. You know, I'd been singing choirs my whole life, but certainly not that music. And I remember some point towards the end that this uh, middle-aged woman kind of turned to me and said, we're almost done. <laughs> and that was a kind of time marker for me, actually, because I felt that time did not work the same during that time, that uh, period when the service was going on. Hmm. And it also, I, I walked away the, with a very strong sense that in that humble little room, that heaven touched earth at that place. Hmm. And even though I hadn't really wrapped my head around the whole thing theologically and historically and all that kind of stuff, even though I've been reading about orthodoxy for a couple of months by that point, I just... I just knew that I needed to be back there. And within a few weeks after that, I, I actually decided I need to have this my whole life. So I actually visited another Orthodox church that was a little bit closer to where I lived and was welcomed very, very warmly. And again, just 
enraptured by the experience and contacted the priest within a week or so of getting there, actually. And I said, so how do I join? And uh, he was extremely patient with me and um, very kind. And he said, well, this is the process. And so I sort of jumped in with both feet. And then the next year I was chrismated, you know, anointed uh-huh. with holy oil. That's basically like the Western Confirmation. Right. And, and became an Orthodox Christian at Pascha of that year in 1998. Wow. Six years after that, I uh, went to seminary and uh, I was ordained as a priest in 2006. What was it that made you think that you needed to move, not just from worshiping in an Orthodox church, but into the seminary exploration of your faith? What what was that process and what was the, the siren's call that you were responding to? The funny thing is, is that there was no moment when I thought, yes, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Even though I, I've known a lot of clergy that have that moment, uh, I did not have a moment like that. When I went to the Orthodox Church, I was actually teetering between wanting to work in theater for my professional life and right. uh, wanting to be an English professor, actually. I had no idea of being clergy, but I do remember simply being extremely impressed by watching the priesthood and and having a sense that that is a different thing from the kind of pastorate that I had seen growing up, where a pastor was basically a preacher and a teacher, and and I didn't really know it at the time, but also usually an administrator of some kind. But but to be able to be that guy standing in front of that spot where heaven touches earth hmm. and where God is present among people, in a way, I mean, it's not like when I was an evangelical, we didn't believe that that kind of thing happened. But it it always struck me as being more of a metaphor than anything else. Oh, yeah, we believe that God is here. Or or people say, you know, I, I really felt the spirit move through this room. And I was like, well, what did you feel exactly? Like, it's kind of emotional experience. But when you're talking about a tradition where a sacrifice is offered on an altar and a meal is shared with your God, there's something about Orthodox worship that kind of doesn't care where you are intellectually and doesn't care where you are emotionally. I mean, certainly you you can engage on those levels if you want to. I mean, it's absolutely there. But Offering up a sacrifice to God is something that you you do. And so the question is not so much what does this service mean, right, nor how did that make me feel, uh-huh. but rather what does this do? So the, you know, the question for ancient Christians was, was, was not so much how do we worship. Everybody knew how to worship. You, you have a meal with your God. But the question is whom is worthy of this worship? Uh, it, it's not these various other spiritual beings. It's only this one, you know, yeah. this one God, right? And so, you know, in, in, in the Orthodox Church, that ancient primal sense of what human worship with God is, is is continued. And so as a result, then, just as most things you do in life involve your whole human person, like just think about a meal, right? A meal with your family involves the whole human person. There is an intellectual component, there's an emotional component. But the main thing is, is that you're doing something, which is you are putting food on the table and you're sharing it. And when you do that, you become community and you, you reaffirm the community, you, you shape the community, you expand the community, right? If you invite someone over for dinner, they become at least temporarily part of your family. And if you're, if you're, if someone is your enemy, you don't eat with them. <laughs> you know, they're, right. they're not invited into the meal. 
This is a great time for me to interrupt and tell you that I will have a series coming up soon on spirituality of food and wine. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, make sure that you do so you don't miss out on those conversations. We talk about feasting versus fasting and enjoyment versus gluttony. Two very different scholars and two interesting perspectives. Our virtual podcast table will be laid with a feast. I cannot wait. And hopefully we whet your appetite here. It is a meal, you know, but um, it's not just something that stands for something else. It's something that's actually happening. And so my experience as evangelical, as I said, was that these things were mostly ideas and metaphors and beautiful ones. But in, in, in the Orthodox Church, I've I'm actually doing it. Yeah, communing with God is not something you primarily feel. It's an it's an act that you do. So yeah, there there is this this whole human person that's engaged in in Christian worship in the Orthodox Church. So, you know, body, soul, spirit, senses, emotions, everything all together. And even if some element of you is not totally on board on a given day, which I mean, let's face it, that's humanity, right? You're still doing the thing. It's, it's not fake. You're still doing it. You're still communing with God. You're still actually having that encounter. One of the things that I want us to get into is the idea of creating sacred spaces. And since you just mentioned all the senses, that is another uh, distinction between the Orthodox Church. And then it... I hate to say Protestant church is one big umbrella because there's so many different kinds of Protestant and there's so many different kinds of Catholic, but different churches, maybe I'll, I'll just make it personal that I grew up in. They were fairly well and quite purposefully void of religious iconography of any type because they were trying to be very welcoming to anyone not familiar with that type of imagery. But There is, in creating this sacred space, the Orthodox churches I've been in with the candles, with the iconography, with the design of the building itself, it's everything seems to stand for something, mean something, and represent something. And so therefore, even the smells, the sights, the feeling, it's all of the senses of humanity seem to be vibrating a little bit differently within that context. How did you go about trying to create this sacred space that holistically ushered people into the experience, not just the intellectual stimulation of God and the Bible and scripture? I would add to what you said about everything representing something or meaning something and kind of take it further and say that all of the elements that you see in the Orthodox in Orthodox worship, including the building and, and all that goes into it, don't just mean something or represent something, but they actually participate in something, right? So it's not just when I see this icon, I should think about Jesus, for instance. It's when I, when I encounter this icon, I am encountering Christ. It, it's now. It, it, I'm not. Just, I'm not saying that you know this piece of wood in front of me with paint and so forth that I that I worship it. Right? I don't. That that would be idolatry. God alone is worthy of worship. But there's this participates in the reality of Christ. So any honor that I show to an icon by say kissing it, which is the most common way that Orthodox Christians will venerate icons, is by kissing them. 
which is weird to, you know, Americans. We don't kiss anything except people, generally speaking. It is um, true. You know, but but in many other cultures, kissing is something you do all the time. You, you know, in American culture, kissing is generally reserved for people who are romantically engaged. But in, in many cultures, you know, it's just, hey, how are you? You could kiss somebody right. the very first time you meet them, not usually on the lips. In the Orthodox Church, it kind of retains that Eastern cultural sense that kissing is a greeting. Right. And so since the the iconography, the building itself, all of these things participate in heavenly realities that then we engage with by means of what it is that we're, you know, touching, what we're entering into, what we're smelling, then that makes it so that there is this direct ritual encounter with God, with his angels, with the saints, with the heavenly reality. Mm. Right. And and a lot of it, I think a lot of the reason why, for instance, many modern people would not feel welcomed, like you made the, the reference to, you know, churches being sort of very bare by comparison, um, being a matter of welcoming people is the reason why I think that that's that Orthodox churches may not be regarded as welcoming to modern Western people is that the cosmology that they're participating in is radically different from what we're used to. Okay, stick with me here. By cosmology, I don't think Father Andrew is talking about our understanding of the universe in scientific terms, but in the how-do-we-set-up-our-worldview sort of way. To think of ourselves as individuals on a sphere that revolves as it rotates around the sun requires us to view ourselves from outside the experience of being here now— So Father Andrew tries to introduce me to how the Orthodox cosmology, again, the shaping of the understanding of being in the world, works. So we're used to this kind of flattened, egalitarian sense of bringing everything everything to my level and no one is better than anyone else. And, and, you know, and this kind of democratic ideal, you know, of course, there's there's value to that. But but that's not the cosmology that the scripture depicts, and it's certainly not the cosmology that subsequent Christians understood. Orthodox Christian architecture and ritual and so forth are based on not projecting ourselves outside of where we are. We are here, and there are things that with my human eyes I can't see. I can't see the heavenly hosts, right. even though they are all around me. And so what iconography, for instance, can do is to indicate that. But it's not just iconography. Like The clergy, for instance, are vested in certain ways, not so that they look all fancy or you know, present some kind of royal image, although there is some truth to that, right? But you know, if we take what Jesus says seriously, where he said that the sons of resurrection become sons of God and equal to the angels, then that means that we have the possibility of participating in the same glory of God that the angels participate in and to function in the same way that the angels function as participating in the governing of creation. And, and ancient peoples believed, and I think, I think had good reason to believe, that the sun and the moon and the stars and the oceans and the earth and so forth were not just these pieces of material that have these kind of atomistic existence where, you know, it's just sort of deterministic forces that move molecules around, but that there were spiritual beings associated with all these things. And this is not because of their ignorance. It's because of their cosmology and their theology. And honestly, I would say that one of our problems in the modern world is that we don't actually see that there are spiritual beings involved with everything. And I think that Orthodox worship takes that very seriously. 
So the creating of sacred space. So on, on one level, as a as a priest, it's it's relatively easy in that I don't have to look like let me come up with an idea here that's going to make people feel like they're in sacred space, right? That would come across to me very artificial, right. you know. And and you know, as as someone who used to work in theater, like I know how to do that. I, I can make people have a, an experience, but that's still artificial. And at some point, someone is going to say, well, where is the man behind the curtain here? Right. You know, and, and I used to tell people like, well, that's what I did for a living. I was the man behind the curtain. But the kind of evangelical I was, evangelicalism I was in before I became Orthodox really was starting to head in the theatrical direction. And that was actually one of the reasons that I got out. I was like, you know what? I am the man behind the curtain. I knew that it was sincerely done, but I also knew that it was artificially done. So as an Orthodox priest, my my job is not to artificially make something, even if I, I'm really good at it, but to receive the tradition that has been passed on and essentially just to extend that same thing. So that's why, for instance, Orthodox churches all tend to have the same basic three-space structure of holy place or the sanctuary, or sometimes they call it the altar, not just the table, but that space in general the nave, and then the narthex. There's always these three spaces. And the narthex is kind of the transitional space between the world and heaven. And the nave is that place where the people of God gather to offer up the sacrifice. And then the sanctuary, the holy place, the altar, is the place where the sacrifice itself is offered. You know, So there's this increase in intensity as you enter in. I, I don't have to invent that. That progression right. exists, and it existed even prior to uh, what we think of as Christianity. I mean, these are just human realities in terms of approaching God. Design is such an amazing thing to me. And design was a huge part of how places were constructed in the ancient world. The structure told you what kind of activities were supposed to happen there. So just think of the tabernacle. It had the common space where everyone lived, worked, mingled with one another, where they set up their own tents. You then went into a designated area. It was the common space, but it's sacred space. This is where all the people could enter, and it's where the altar was. Was, and it's where sacrifices were brought. But from there, the space got smaller and a little bit more designated. And now only the priests can go into the holy place. And then from there, the space gets even smaller. The ceiling shrinks, the walls come in, the entrance is smaller. And from there, only one priest, one time of year can go. So the space, as it shrunk from very large into really small, was communicating that fewer and fewer people could have access to that place. This is not because of moral goodness or badness, but it's about ritual purity. Who is pure and who can enter into God's presence? So the place design was designating what was sacred and what was not. I think that one of the reasons why it can be so jarring for people who are not used to the Orthodox Church, and especially for you know people who live in kind of Western egalitarian societies, is that when we see any kind of hierarchy, we just sort of object to it because, like, well, that person is not any better than I am, right. you know. And and it's true, you know, as a, as a priest, I'm not better than somebody else. I'm, I'm not, you know. So that is true, right? But nonetheless, there is still a hierarchy, even as there is a hierarchy of the Holy Trinity. So. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not different levels of God. 
Like it's not that the Father is more God than the Son and or more than the Spirit, but but rather that nonetheless there is an order. I think Father Andrew and I have a lot more to discuss on this issue. But at the time of the interview, I did not interrupt him. But now as I'm editing this episode, I'm writing out a list of questions and comments for us to talk about again. For sure, there is an element of myself that has a hard time with hierarchy, primarily because it's been so hurtful in my life and in the lives of people I really care about. But at the same time, I understand aspects of truth behind what Father Andrew is saying. We simply need a lot more conversation that includes some definitions and maybe even some more theology. In the meantime, we start to walk down a path in this conversation about sacred place that I find absolutely fascinating and might have to flag for a later episode because it is so complexly beautiful. You know, it's, it's not about bringing God down to our level, but actually about in some way us coming to heaven, that this place becomes yep. heaven during Absolute, this worship, right? right? So there's yeah. this sense that Eden now is present again on earth. That You know, sometimes we'll ask, well, where exactly was Eden? And they'll say, oh, it was, it was in Iraq or it was somewhere in, you know, the Middle East. And and it's like, well, Eden, it, yes, it is likely that Adam and Eve were someplace in the Middle East, maybe, but that's not what Eden is. Eden is a sacred geography that's overlaid our material geography, it's a sacred, you know, like where is, for instance, where is the holy mountain of the Lord? Well, it's Sinai, <laughs> but it's also Tabor. It's also Zion. It's also Mount yes, Athos. Yes. It's all these places all kind of at once. But each one of them participates in the holy mountain of the Lord where you meet the Lord. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, it's interesting. Orthodox churches are built that way, too, that they're, you know, not always, but ideally that the altar area tends to be at an elevated level above the nave. And it's not because it's not for like theatrical reasons so that everybody can see, because, you know, we put that iconostasis up there and suddenly you can't see half of what's going on back there. It's actually because it's a kind of simulated mountain. And, you know, the, the temple in Jerusalem was the same. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and all of these things, it, it was it was really about simulating either a mountain or a garden or often both. And it's interesting, you know, ancient pagan peoples would would build their own artificial mountains or their own artificial gardens or sometimes again both which is what the hanging gardens of babylon right. were but but the bible depicts god having built that and placing his own image in the midst of it man rather right. than uh man building his own mountain and putting an image that he made of god in, in the middle of it which is the way that paganism works I get really excited over conversations like this. And what is really fun is that Father Andrew had me on one of his podcasts called The Areopagus. We talked about sacred places and I could cut a good 40 minutes from his podcast and paste it here as a way to bring Deuteronomy into the conversation because Deuteronomy belongs in every conversation. Instead, I'll just tell you to go to his show and I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. Although I have to save some for part two of the conversation, here, Father Andrew and I do dive into the complexity of the representation of sacred place and how that influences our experience of sacred places and the necessity of creating breathing room for the mystery and for the gradual understanding of the layers of meaning you experience over time. Well, at, at least I think that's what he's saying. As someone who now works in Orthodox Christian media, 
um, one of my primary functions is as a teacher. And I often get asked the question, like, can you like, give me one book to read, you know, that kind of get, gets me like, th what, this is what Orthodox Christianity is. But, but, but there isn't such a thing. And the reason why there, and it's not like someone sat back and said, we're not going to have a book like that. These kind of books, kinds of books are forbidden because certainly people have attempted it, right? There are books that kind of attempt to be that, you know, Orthodox Christianity 101. But the same reason I think that we as the Orthodox Church sort of fail to do that is the same reason why you can't walk into an Orthodox church and get everything, not even after a thousand passes through, because it's not an intellectual exercise. It's not a linear experience where like, okay, here's the introduction reading material and we'll go a little bit more complex and eventually get you to advanced. That's <laughs> right. not what it is. It, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's like human life, which is multi-vectored and, and envelops you, right. but the, the church building itself functions that way. And even the services, like the services are not linear, even though they have a beginning and an end, they don't go from A to Z in a clear, straightforward manner. And they actually represent a given service, even a very short one, represents layers upon layers of accumulation right. over centuries upon centuries. And multiple intersecting patterns, like what's the day of the week? What's the time of the day? What's the, what's the day of the month? You know, right. what season are we in? All of these things come together. Or even just what is the name of the building that I'm in? That alters a service. So my parish is named St. Paul. Well, the fact that St. Paul is the patron saint of that place, that alters the way that we worship. We not only mention him in almost every single service, but then, for instance, we celebrate his feast day. All of these things come together. And you can't get them all at once, and you can't even get them over years and years and years of experiencing it. And that is okay. That's very human. And one of the key elements of, of Orthodox epistemology is that who you are is a major factor in your ability to learn and participate. Yeah. So if, if someone has not repented of their sins and is not in a continual process of repentance, they cannot understand the things of God. Hmm. They might learn about him, but they won't know him. I've, I've often told people like, like you're, you're simply not going to understand this element of the faith until you've lived it for a while. You, you, it doesn't matter how much you read, you know, you can't make this process speed up. It, it, it just doesn't. You have to become the kind of person who is able to receive this. Hmm. And there's, it seems like a catch 22 for people who, who want to just apprehend it all linearly. Like, like if I say, look, you have to become an Orthodox Christian in order to understand the Orthodox church. Well, but I want to do it the other way. I want to understand it and then decide whether or not I want to be an Orthodox Christian. I'm like, well, I, I hear you, but that's not how this works. It just doesn't. <laughs> it, it's just like people, again, people getting married. Yes, you can know them to a certain extent before you get engaged, but you don't know them on the day that you get married the way that you do 20 years later if you stay faithful together. Right. You just don't. And, right. and you can't say, I want to know them now the way I would 20 years from now in order to make the decision whether to marry them. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know? and, it, and it's funny that we Americans, we want religion to, to work in that other direction. Like, well, I want to decide whether this is right or not and understand it fully before I commit to it. And I get that. I mean, that's a very sort of consumer narrative. You know, I want to understand everything about this, and then I'll decide whether to buy it. And that is a wise way to function in, in many ways. 
but it just doesn't work. At least with, with Orthodox Christianity, it just doesn't work that way. It can't. It, mm -hmm. it just can't. Ha, remember how I told you at the beginning to remember Father Andrew's experience? I mean, in those days, there weren't fog machines and moving lights and stuff, but they did have the rock bands. It's been quite a conversation and quite the journey that we have been on. I invite you to rejoin us at the podcast table next week as we continue this discussion on Sacred Place. If you find the Context Matters podcast valuable, there are so many ways that you can support it. You can review it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or Stitcher, or you can share this episode with a friend. Your word of mouth makes a big difference. Or you can join my Patreon team with people like Mindy and Bon Koo and Brent Emery. They financially make it possible to cover the production costs of these episodes. My Patreon partners are also receiving sneak peeks at chapters of my upcoming book, spices from my favorite guy in Israel, and access to some online teaching courses. If you want to join the team, there's a link in the show notes of this episode. If you would like more information and alerts for upcoming trips I'm leading to Israel and potentially even an early church history trip in Turkey, depending on the whole global virus thing, you can sign up for my newsletter and hear about these trips first. So sign up at my website, which is www.narrativeofplace.com. Thank you for joining me at the table for these really fascinating conversations. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all of the music you hear. I am so grateful to him. And I look forward to our conversations every single week. So until then... Be safe, take care of the small businesses around you, and stay curious about the world around you. Mm -hmm.